Hello, I'm Rudy Dorneman, and this is Notes from an Imaginary Place, a monthly podcast of short stories set in fantastical imaginary places. And this month's story takes you to some catacombs. Here we go. Catacombs. They honeycomb beneath the rivers. The clay of the riverbed has been flash-flared into ceramic, then roofed over with clear plexiglass. You can look right down at the dead lying there. Peaceful and unchanging, they look right back at you. Wherever there's a river, there's a catacomb every so many miles. The hairdresser feels like he's been to every single one of them on this side of the continent. On the other side of the mountains, they have their own traditions about death, and about many things in life as well. He plays an essential role in preparing a person to assume their niche in the catacombs. Because just as the dead have to wear their specialized robes, flowing in some places and wrapped tight in others, their hair must be styled in the distinctive styles of the deceased. It takes cutting just here, lengthening exactly there, tinting and glazing to catch the light that scatters and wavers down through the water, patiently weaving dozens of little tangle wreaths in the places determined by the exacting calculations of the mortuary palm readers and the detailed postnostications of the forensic astrologers. The people of this region are notoriously skeptical of anything unscientific. But they consider this an art, and if art happens to be ruled by the motions of the heavens, that's entirely fitting. The hairstyles don't have anything to do with who the person was, what they did in their lifetime. Instead, they're meant to be part of the timelessness of the catacombs, a look they never would have worn in life a symbol of the vast transition they've made. When the hairdresser's done, all the elements of the departed's look are firmly joined together, and they're ready for eternity. He sees a difference between doing something to the usual standard and what he thinks of as tightening it down, getting it really right, making sure every curl and tuft is in the precisely proper place fully capturing what the astrologers and palmists expect, while also sharing some hints of the person. Not that he ever knows the deceased. In fact, the practice is for the hairdressers and all the other presenters of the dead to live in an entirely different region of the country from where they work. No personal memories can complicate the execution of their craft. Their hands are guided entirely by instinct and intuition. They are assigned to one catacomb from new moon to new moon, then drift away downstream, never returning to any particular place again. They travel by glass boats that are flat-bottomed and as long as ordinary river gondolas, but propelled by the current rather than poles. When one river eventually brings them to the sea, they begin again at the headwaters of another river. They spend every fourth month at home in a mortuary worker's village in a high desert oasis. Even though the land is bare and flat in every direction, 
the hairdresser feels like those months back home, months when he rarely sees anything green when he's out of doors, are the times he's most thoroughly surrounded by life. Rather than spending each day in his assigned mini-salon, alone in the company of a departed stranger, he gets outside and surrounds himself with friends, other hairdressers, as well as costumers who know all the ways that the fabrics want to drape and swaddle, and cobblers whose fingers are expert at folding sheets of specially tooled leather into the footwear of the dead because it would be bad luck to bind the deceased at the ankles with any kind of strap or tie. The others all seem to feel the same way, to similarly have had too much of solitude and silence, and he never goes anywhere without a raucous gaggle of at least eight companions. They hike canyons and race along ridge trails under the scornful sun. They splash about in cave pools under the laughing moon, at dawn and dusk, they can be found serenading the indifferent stars. They pack all the experiences they can into that month. Romance, heartbreak, striking up new friendships, striving to keep older friendships from fading, feats of bravery or near-death foolishness, late-night moments of acute epiphanic insight, seemingly endless mid-mornings of nothing in particular. Too soon, a new month starts, and they have to stifle themselves and return to their work. The hairdresser's personal tradition, which has now become ritual among an ever-expanding set of friends, friends of friends, acquaintances, acquaintances of friends, friends of acquaintances, acquaintances of acquaintances, etc., is to spend the final night of each home time with his bags packed, ready to board the transport at dawn, singing that month's most memorable night songs in a vast disorganized chorus and watching as the last light slips from the face of the moon. Whatever song they've all sung last will still be running in his mind when the first body is delivered to his mini-salon, just as he's sure it's running through the minds of dozens of others who are at that same moment also facing the dead up and down all the rivers one last thing they're all doing together. Each hairstyle, as prescribed by the stars and the wrinkles on the corpse's own hands, is an index for resurrection, their wake-up time coded in their coiffure. On this side of the continent, the belief is that at the appointed, individual, unique moment, each dead person will resume being a living person, pull the escape lever, and rise to the surface, surrounded by bubbles of the air they'd been entombed with, which contains the breath of their loved ones. With a comb of bronze that's so green with vertigris that it's nearly impossible to tell apart from the leaves of the tree on which it hangs, the previously deceased will comb out their locks, undoing the painstaking hair work. Even then, owing to the tints, trimming, and extensions, it may take a moment for them to recognize themselves when they look at their reflection in the river's surface. They'll gather and loosen their robes for better freedom of movement and make their way to higher ground, picking up the shoes that will have unfolded off their feet by this point. They'll smooth the leather out so the designs hidden for however many centuries can now be seen, gifts for whoever they'll meet next. 
It's rare, but not unheard of, that the mortuary workers will be guiding one person down to their place in the catacombs, even as another person emerges from an adjacent niche. The hairdresser has never seen this happen, although he's heard stories from those who have. At such times, it's most polite to quietly continue what you're doing, not to trouble the formerly deceased with anything that would further complicate the many, many things they must be feeling as they shake off such a long period of inertia. The hairdresser isn't sure he agrees with this approach. Certainly, he was very much caught up in his own thoughts while he was working the bronze comb through his snagging hair. But having anyone to speak with after that would have been welcome. Anyone who could explain who this person was who stared back up at him from the reflection in the shallow water. Who he'd been, or who he'd become. Mostly, he wished he wouldn't have had to walk so far, and barefoot at that, before finding someone who'd accept the intricately patterned leatherwork that had once been his shoes. These days, he's careful to observe whether the deceased appears to be right-handed or left, so that he can wind the tangle wreaths in the direction that will be most easily combed out again. When he can, when it doesn't contradict anything the astrologer or the palm reader tells him, he tries to preserve a little of the person's original look, a bit of waviness, a hint of a cowlick, a nod to the original color. He knows how blank their mind will be when they stare down into the water, but he wants to believe that some shades of memory might linger from a past life, maybe just sometimes, even if he didn't experience that himself. He doesn't know, since there's no polite way to ask, but he suspects a good number of the other mortuary hairdressers, costumers, and cobblers are ex-dead as well. Whether or not they are, he's sure they're doing their best, just as he is. That was Catacombs. Thanks, as always, for joining us here on Notes from an Imaginary Place. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Richard Brodigan's 1968 novel In Watermelon Sugar, which also features transparent tombs underneath rivers, and was definitely lurking in my mind from the time I started on writing this piece and realized I was also writing about transparent burial chambers underneath rivers. I think I went somewhere a bit different from where he went with his, but definitely I felt the need to give a tip of the hat to Mr. Brodigan. In the other news department, I shared last episode that my story, Starblind, Book Lost, and Hearing the Songs of True Birds, is appearing in the July-August 2022 issue of the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. There's been some printer delays, but I understand they should be appearing in stores very soon, if not a couple days ago, as I record this in late July. So, if you're interested, please do check that out. Also, if you are curious about the story, I participated in a reading just a couple days ago, along with the author Robert Levy, who also has a story in that issue. We were both part of Daniel Brown's 
nighttime logic reading series, which you can find on YouTube. And of course, I've also got links to the reading and to where you can find the magazine issue online um, on my website at rudydornaman.com. So if you check any of those out, I hope you enjoy them. And thank you once again for joining us on Notes from an Imaginary Place. I'll be back in a month with another story from another fantastical place. And the secret animal inspiration for this episode is... X-ray fish.